Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I think it's fair to say this is not your typical election. I am not a natural politician. Everybody loves me. Have you always told the truth? I've always tried to. Honestly, she's guilty as hell. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? You know, I have to say, I no longer think he's funny. I know more about ISIS than... The generals do. No, Donald, you don't. Have you even read the United States Constitution? I regret those comments that he made. Fathers will be able to say to their daughters, you too can grow up to be president. We need a political revolution. Nobody knows the system better than me. Really? Which is why I alone can fix it. USA! 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 From the New York Times, this is The Runner. I'm Michael Barbaro. We've heard this over and over again for a decade. People just don't trust Hillary Clinton. There's a little doubt with trust there to me, but uh, she's a very intelligent person. Everybody, even liberals, know that she lies. Everybody acknowledges this, but there's still great support for her, and I don't understand why. Today, in three parts, what's really behind that distrust? When did it start? And how much of it's based on her own documented dishonesty? It's much more complicated than those 30,000 deleted emails, or Benghazi. We'll start right there with the facts. Then we'll examine what, if anything, Hillary can do to rebuild that trust with voters. For that, we'll talk to a Democratic strategist who had the really unenviable assignment of solving the exact same problem for Bill Clinton. That time, it worked, and he'll tell you how he did it. Then we'll hear from a longtime friend and advisor to Hillary Clinton who has seen up close how her friend's personality and instincts have earned her this reputation, fairly or not. But first, the real story behind the distrust with Mark Landler, White House correspondent for The Times, who covered Hillary Clinton for years as Secretary of State and wrote a book about it called Alter Egos. Hey, Mark, thanks for being here. Great to be here, Michael. So, trust. I really want to ground this discussion in the actual facts, or in some cases, the non-facts or the non-truths. We'll pick three or four of them. Number one, the email server. Go to town. Well, the email server is a case where She's been caught in a couple of clear untruths in her explanation of what happened. In her first explanation of why she had a personal email address rather than a state.gov, an official government email address, she claimed it was for convenience sake. She wanted to keep all her communications on a single BlackBerry device. That was illogical to most people who heard the explanation, and it became even more illogical after it was clear that not only did she have a personal email address, but she had a server in the basement of her house in Chappaqua. And to some extent, her explanation for why that was never really got any better. It became more treacherous and dangerous for her when it became clear that there were a lot of very sensitive emails flowing back and forth over that server. And again, her explanation on that was proven wrong. She said, I never sent or received emails that were marked classified at the time. The FBI, after conducting a lengthy interview with her and a months-long investigation, came out and said, well, in fact, there were emails that were marked classified at the time that Clinton either sent or received them. So she was proven untrue in that particular claim. The second part of this, though, I think is equally important, which is this notion of 
why wasn't she willing to have a government email account right. like every other employee of the State Department? And that goes to the broader issue around the Clintons, that they simply don't view themselves as being subject to the same regulations that the rest of the world has to comply with. Let's turn to the volatile subject of Benghazi. Well, Benghazi is, in my view, a very different story. I've never put much stock in the central, you know, Republican claims about Benghazi, which is that she, you know, knowingly deprived the diplomatic outpost in Libya of adequate security personnel and then lied about it afterwards. I think that on the first count, there's no evidence that she was ever even personally involved in a decision on how to secure that diplomatic facility. On the second question, did she lie about it in the aftermath? I do think it's fair to say that both Clinton and the White House tried to put the best possible face on the attack in the immediate aftermath. I don't think they did it because they were trying to be dishonest. I think that the facts of the case were extremely murky. Was it, in fact, a premeditated terrorist attack? Was it a spontaneous attack that grew out of a protest outside the facility? That's at the core of what was complicated and confusing in the days after Benghazi. It's, of course, the irony of Benghazi that it ended up leading to another Clinton scandal, namely the email scandal. And that's a sort of a classic Clinton pattern where there's an original scandal, say Whitewater, that turns out to be a little less than meets the eye, but it then gives birth to a later scandal. In the case of Whitewater, of course, it ended with Monica Lewinsky. In the case of Benghazi, it ended in the email scandal. Let's turn finally to the Clinton Foundation and whether or not Bill and Hillary Clinton have kind of combined the philanthropy they describe as so noble with the work of the State Department, which is supposed to be entirely separate, based on donations that that go to one and the expectation of something from the other. When Hillary Clinton was on Meet the Press and was asked a seemingly straightforward question with a straightforward answer, she offered an answer that really surprised me. The question was, don't you think that those people giving these large sums of money to the Clinton Foundation expect something in return, knowing your job, knowing your status. Her answer was, absolutely not. Doesn't that seem on its face either deliberately naive or actually dishonest? It's very hard for me to understand why an answer like that, you know, could could pass the smell test. It just seems strange. Uh, it seems almost axiomatic that if you have people that are giving money to a foundation which has close ties to someone who's in a government position of great power, that there couldn't at least be an implicit quid pro quo attached to it. And it seems to me the more honest answer in a case like that is to say, look, of course, you know, human nature being what it is, people might have expectations. It's my job as Secretary of State to make sure that those expectations are never realized, that no one ever gets any gain out of a relationship with my husband's foundation through my job as a senior government official. That, in some ways, would have been the more honest answer. But as is often the case with Hillary Clinton, the more honest answer I think she judges is going to be politically difficult. And so she often defaults to an answer that she might think is legally a cleaner answer, but I think is sometimes a much harder answer to accept. So that then goes to sort of this very lawyerly 
careful parsing of reality that, that both Bill and Hillary have done for, for much of their public careers, and that again gets at this core issue of why can't people trust her. You've used some really telling phrases here, more honest. In a lot of cases, we're not really talking about an outright lie. So why, in that case, does the mistrust run so deep with her? Well, I think it goes back to the way she handles these issues and the fact that her answers always come off sounding so calculated. You make an important point here, which is that Hillary Clinton, throughout her career of 25, 30 years on the public stage, has never actually been nailed red-handed with the kind of fraud or malfeasance that many, many other political figures have. Yet, there's this aura of dishonesty that attaches itself to her. And she, you know, chalks it up to the elaborate right-wing conspiracy and 25 years of people casting aspersions on her and battering her integrity. But the bottom line is she sometimes takes issues that if she had confronted them more forthrightly, she could have perhaps prevented them from snowballing the way they did. I think the email scandal is almost a classic example of this. Clearly, she made a judgment that was a wrong judgment. It took her a long time to kind of fess up to that. And then she continued to complicate the matter by saying it was allowed, nothing prohibited it. I think if she'd been willing to be more forthright at the very beginning, she might have diffused some of this and prevented a scandal, which in this case, you know, dripped for over a year. She might have turned it into a, you know, painful month-long ordeal rather than what it became. And that's, again, been a hallmark of the way she's dealt with situations. And I think it's really contributed. It's perhaps the chief factor for why people continue to believe that there's just something not on the level about her, something underhanded, something somehow less than honest. So so in any relationship, whether it's marriage or it's friendship or of candidate and the electorate, if there's a problem with trust, it usually comes from some original sin, something way, way back that you kind of have to dig around and, and remember. And if we think about the Clintons, where do you think that first breach begins? Well, you know, I think it's it's possible it goes back even to the very dawn of Bill Clinton's run for the presidency. I recall, you know, many, many years ago when I was a young guy, first reading about Bill Clinton, and one of the very first things I remember is that his nickname in Arkansas had been Slick Willie, and that his integrity and the whiff of scandal around him was the only thing that might potentially derail this incredibly gifted and charismatic politician. And then, you know, those of us old enough to remember, remember that the the first great drama of Bill Clinton's presidential campaign was the Jennifer Flowers episode and, you know, his wife Hillary standing by her man in the face of, you know, this record of kind of marital infidelity. So I think the original sin you know, really does go back to the very beginning of Bill Clinton's exposure to the national stage. And, you know, unfortunately for Hillary, when he overcame those problems and was elected, she quickly was swept up in the same sense of impropriety. You know, I mean, it's almost the gospel of 1990s political scandal here. But, you know, she was really swept up in what was always there with the Clintons from the very beginning. 
there's a remarkable statistic that 67% of registered voters contacted by the New York Times and by CBS about two months ago said that they don't trust her. In your experience, did some of the mistrust of Hillary Clinton ever cross the borders into the international arena? Was she a trusted figure by other leaders around the world when she was Secretary of State and you were traveling with her? This is an interesting question because, and it goes to something that I've been thinking about a lot myself, which is perceptions of Hillary Clinton as a political candidate versus perceptions of Hillary Clinton as either a senator or a secretary of state. The answer, the short answer to your question is I saw little to no evidence that she wasn't trusted. In other words, foreign leaders, whether it was heads of state or foreign ministers, almost universally respected her. And that kind of goes to a broader issue, which is that I think this trust issue was less of a problem for her when she was a senator from New York and for the four years that she was Secretary of State. I think the press had a very different relationship with her in both of those two periods of her career. And you know, no, they had they, access to her. They had access to her. We had access to her. We spoke to her regularly on the airplane, questioned her uh, at every stop in a news conference. And so, you know, to some extent, the trust question, I think, was mitigated a lot by the fact that reporters felt like they were getting a chance to ask her questions and listen to her answers. And that there's, you know, just this broader point to make about Hillary Clinton, which is that when you remove her from a political context, some of these old issues go away. And that accounts for, I think, the fact that she had a mid-60s approval rating during most of her time as Secretary of State, you know, and watched it plummet back into the high 30s when she became a political candidate. And this is a cycle that's repeated itself over and over for her. You know, during the time that she was a New York senator, she was was really very solidly popular, and a lot of these issues simply faded into the background. But when she ran for president in 2008, they, you know, were resurrected immediately, and the same cycle happened again in 2016. Mark, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. It was great being with you. This podcast is supported by The Reading Culture. Looking to spark a reading revolution in your school or community? Curious about the creators behind your favorite children's and young adult books? The Reading Culture, hosted by Jordan Lloyd Bookie, is a kid-lit podcast that goes deep with diverse authors and illustrators who are shaping the industry. They uncover everything from origin stories to book band battles, plus a curated reading challenge from each episode's celebrity guest. Join the reading culture, where reading is our passion. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Thomas Gibbsneff. I'm a journalist at the New York Times. I served in the Marine Corps as an infantryman. When it comes to reporting on the front line, a lot of the same basics are at play. Uh, you're looking at the map of where you're going. If you're on a paved road, field roads, you know, is there a hospital nearby? Is your body armor affixed with the first aid kit? Does everyone know where that first aid kit is? We arrive into a, a military position. I get out of the car. I look at my watch. You know, I set a timer. No more than an hour. I'm listening for drones, jets, check in with the team. Is everyone comfortable? And if they are, then we proceed. Frontline reporting is dangerous, but I think nothing is more important than talking to the people involved, you know, hearing their stories and being able to connect that with people 
thousands of miles away. Anything that can make something like this more personal, I think is well worth the risk. New York Times subscribers make it possible for us to keep doing this vital coverage. If you'd like to subscribe, you can do that at nytimes.com slash subscribe. Part two in our examination of distrust. A Clinton with a trust problem. We've seen that before. It was 1992, and distrust of Bill Clinton was extraordinarily high. People saw him as a philanderer. They saw him as a draft dodger. And it was the single biggest threat to his election. Stanley Greenberg was the campaign advisor who devised the secret plan and really built this entire special team to try to turn that image around for Bill Clinton. Stan joins us from London to share the lessons he learned back then. He can still remember the painful math of that campaign. 50% of voters thought that Bill Clinton lacked the integrity to be president. What happened in these focus groups kind of changed the way I did focus groups. Because I would listen to people about Bill Clinton. You, know, you, start, you, you started at the beginning of the Manhattan Project, and you got people in a room. Um, and you, you, know, you, you asked them in an open-ended way to you know, talk about Bill Clinton. And they obviously had all of the, everything they had heard in the primaries. That, and now you were dealing with many months you know, of information. But what we did in the focus group is I just, out of desperation, I just took an entire page, single-space page, of facts. Yeah, actually, it was two columns. And just said, why don't you read all these facts and circle things that you know, stood out you know, for you. And what happened was they circled, they went to the biography. They went to where he was born. You know, they went to his hometown, the fact that it was the poorest state. They really concentrated around those things. And then when you explored it with them, you said, what's going on here? Why these facts? And it was so dissonant with what they believed to be true that that only enabled us to just unravel the whole negativity that block people from assessing him on his own. That's fascinating. We all think of Arsenio Hall and the saxophone, but meanwhile, it's a <laughs> bunch of it's a bunch of columns in a room with mm -hmm. focus groups. Yep. So at the Democratic convention, there was a little bit of a man from hope moment for Hillary Clinton, and it came in a biographical video where Hillary Clinton described her mother and how she responded to a young Hillary Clinton running home, fleeing a bully in her neighborhood. I was like four, and there were lots of kids in the neighborhood, and I would come out and I would have like a bow in my hair, and the kids would all pick on me. It was my first experience of being bullied, and I was terrified. And one day I'm running into the house, and my mother met me, and she said to me, there's no room for cowards in this house. First of all, does that feel like an echo? of what you guys did with Bill Clinton, and why should or, or will it possibly matter in how people think about her and trust? Well, I think, first of all, I think, it's, I think that was a very smart thing to do. You know, that was a piece of biography that, for sure, people had almost no knowledge of. You know, let's remind people, and they're right to do that, this is a person who struggled, her parents struggled, grand, you know, grandparents, this is people whose mother had a very, you know, very tough time small business owner. She didn't come from money. You know, she came from a, a family that worked hard and aspired to, you know, to do, be middle class. But I think it was very important to remind people, and they've done that at the convention, and they've done that in the period uh, afterwards. You know, it's different than a man from, from hope, but it's also authentic. Bill Clinton really did come from humble origins, and people really didn't know it. And the same thing is true with Hillary Clinton. It sort of reminds me, like, in journalism... Sometimes you go to a source and you say you're working on a story and they say, oh, I don't want to talk to you about it. 
and I, I learned this metaphor when I was mm. coming up in journalism uh, of kind of the empty glass. And you take the empty glass mm-hmm. and you hand it to someone and you say, someone's going to fill this glass. Mm-hmm. It's either going to be you telling your story mm-hmm. or it's going to be a whole lot of other people I'm going to go call telling their story, telling their story for you. Mm-hmm. So who do you want to fill this glass? And when it comes to Bill or Hillary Clinton, and especially now Hillary Clinton, the glass is pretty full. Mm-hmm. So someone's going to have to displace what's in it and put some new stuff in. And you seem to be describing in the Manhattan Project and in what's going on now with Hillary as a project of displacement, right? Taking out the bad water and putting in something maybe a little bit pure and better looking. Yeah, I know. I know you love this. You're going to love this metaphor. And I'm, you know, and I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, you know, it's tempting to do half, you know, glass half full. Uh, has to have to, or you know, or the glasses begin you know, filled with something else. I actually think voters, when they get to this decision, almost empty out the glass. You know, they they know now they have to make a choice for president. That's very, that, you know, that's very fateful. What choice they make, they know for their own families and for and for the country. And I think they're very responsible, you know, uh, about it. And I think they pour out all the. They know there's a lot of stuff in there. Most of the people are getting to this vote have other reasons to be there. They don't like Donald Trump. They like Hillary's vision of what kind of America, you know, will, you know, will look like. Many have been, you know, with Bernie Sanders and, you know, want to see change, the kind of changes that Hillary Clinton, you know, you know, could support. There's a lot of people trying to get to that decision. And you have to be right on the timing. And the the end of the primaries, the convention is a moment when I think people kind of empty out that stuff and say, you know, give me stuff to drink here that can help me make that decision. Well, Stan, thank you again for being here, especially from abroad. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to share my experiences. But here's the thing about Bill Clinton, and you have to remember this. America felt it knew him back then, and he wanted to be known. He wanted to be understood and loved. That was Bill Clinton's thing. His political talents are really legend. Hillary Clinton's really different. By the admission of her own fiercely loyal advisors, Hillary hunkers down and resists public explanation. But these advisors are not blind to how much that instinct can make things worse for her, not better. In part three, I'm joined by Alyssa Muscatine, who started working for Hillary Clinton when she was the first lady and remains close to her today. Alyssa, thank you for joining us from Washington. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Michael. We've been talking this entire episode about the question of integrity and honesty. And people have this idea of Hillary Clinton in their heads. And for many of those people... That idea includes some form or some level of dishonesty. Where do you think that came from, and who is most responsible for it? Well, you know, it's a great question, and it's obviously perplexing to those of us who have known her for a long time and for whom there's such a great contradiction in the person we know and the public uh, reception of her, at least in some quarters in this country. But I think let's just step back for a minute and think about the public life that she's lived. She is probably the most scrutinized public figure in America, uh, certainly one of the most over the last two-plus decades. And very, very few people have been subjected to the kind of scrutiny she's had to endure to really have every aspect of her life under a microscope, really from 1993 on, really even during that campaign in 92. So I think that a lot of stuff gets out there, and people think that they know her when they don't really. I'm not saying she's flawless. She obviously isn't. She's a human being, and she's made her share of mistakes that have contributed to this. But I do think the origins of it are are really broader than her. I feel like I have to confront us with just a few of the factual issues that are out there in the ether. And then the, the most top of mind one 
is going to be the private email server, right? And the original explanations for why she was doing it and whether there was classified information being used over it. And when the FBI finished its report, James Comey felt and argued that she was not being honest in her comments about that. I guess there comes a moment in any relationship where you recognize that people are fallible. And I wonder if in a case like that, you look at it and you just say to yourself, she screwed up. Well, I think that his report was pretty clear that there was no criminal intent on her part. And I think that's the most important thing to remember. And, you know, I think from her point of view, she's trying to be extremely literal and technical. She's a lawyer after all. And from other people's points of view, she's parsing to, you know, to a ridiculous degree. And so therein lies the the conflict and the tension over, you know, is she really being fully disclosive? Is she telling the truth or not? And so on. Um, you know, but as a friend and an advisor, have you guys, I don't, I'm always pluralizing things, but I actually have you on the phone. Have you ever found yourself or watched other people approach her and say, Madam Secretary or Senator Clinton, don't be a lawyer in this moment. Just just tell people it was a mistake. Try to get past it, but don't create any ambiguity around it because that will potentially make things worse. Yeah, well, this will be a frustrating answer because I, I just, <laughs> I really make a you know, I sort of make a pledge to myself never to talk about private conversations I have with her or with anybody like her in her position. But look, yes, I think a lot of people, you know, weigh in and they have opinions and she hears a, she hears a broad spectrum of opinions and um, and then she has to decide for herself and she has to do it in the moment, you know, in an interview and she has to do it in a way that she's comfortable. So we could all sit there and armchair psychologize it. We could be, you know, Monday morning quarterbacks and all those cliched things for, you know, telling people what they should have done after the fact or even before they're in a situation. And when they're in it, they respond in the way that is most comfortable to them. And I think that's sort of what you're seeing. It's it's just the way that she has had to deal with a lot of incoming fire for a very long time. And perhaps these distinctions are, you know, not as clear if you're sitting in the hot seat than if you're not sitting in the hot seat like the rest of us. So why does it seem that in Hillary Clinton's public life, kind of her version of herself, the one that she would like to be told, kind of never seems to quite win out? That's another really, really good question and one that I wish I wish weren't true, but it is true. It is true that her own story of herself often takes a backseat to the counter-narrative that's been put forth by her opponents for a very long time, and that is the one that questions her integrity and questions her trustworthiness and all of those things, her character and so on. And, you know, she's a very, very private person, which is hard to believe for somebody who's been in public life as long as she has, but I think she is. She's she's quite private. She's somewhat reticent. She's not as gregarious as her husband is, is willing to sort of put her emotions on her sleeve. And so I think she's by nature just someone who protects herself a little bit more. And I do think, and I think we would all be like this, if you are scrutinized to the degree that she's been, and if you're criticized to the degree she's been and attacked to the degree that she's been, you get even more protective, right? You don't want to put yourself out there and just get hammered every single day. So, you know, you become even more, perhaps more reticent. And I think that's what's happened with her over time. You know, you you just try to go down the middle as much as you can and hope you're not going to get uh, whacked upside the head that day as much as you did the day before. And that's kind of been what's happened with her. And it's hard to put out a story of your own when the counter story and the narrative that's out there perpetuated by others is really kind of unwavering, relentless, chronic, and uh, gets embedded 
in the way that people see you. And so I think it's really hard to undo that. And I think over time, it's just become harder and harder to undo, no matter how hard you try. You know, I do think perhaps she could have done a better job at various points in providing a narrative that was more compelling for people. When we look at polls and we talk to people, especially voters, we find that the the question of trust, when you ask about Hillary Clinton, inevitably comes back to who she's married to and kind of their history together. And and no one can ever understand a marriage, but it feels like that marriage arouses in people some level of suspicion. And that may be deeply unfair, but it does seem to exist. And I, and I wonder if people are around them understand it in a way that those who aren't exposed to the two of them together can't understand it. You know, every time people ask me about their marriage, I always say to them, well, let me ask you a question. Do you understand your own marriage fully? <laughs> because I think until we can fully understand our own relationships, it's really dangerous to start projecting and making assumptions about other people's relationships. You know, yes, people wish to assume they project a lot of things onto their marriage. Um, I think that you know, if, you're, if you spend time with them, you are fully aware of the kind of total mind meld, the affection, the humor between them, they talk to each other all the time. And I think people sort of forget that because, you know, he's off in some state campaigning and she's off in another state or when she was secretary, she was off in some country and he was, you know, off in his doing his thing. And so there was an appearance that they were not together in the same location a lot. And I would always remind people, why don't you consider how many times a day they talk to each other? So I just get really uncomfortable protective trying to well not even protective just uncomfortable i don't want to talk about anybody else's marriage really honestly because how do you know right when you run for president you can seek it seems to me multiple kinds of trust you can ask people to trust that every word coming out of your mouth is 100 percent accurate you can ask them to trust in your values you can ask them to trust in your experience or trust in your ability to fight for them when you get into the office And it seems to me that Hillary Clinton is possibly running a campaign that seeks different kinds of trust, not necessarily all of them at once. I guess I agree with that. It's certainly in the way you just define the kinds of trust a presidential candidate might seek. I think she, look, she wants to be trusted that she is going to do whatever is humanly possible on her end to make people's lives better. So that kind of trust, I think, would be paramount to her, would be the most important one. I think she would most likely want to be trusted that she's going to work as hard as she can to do that, that there's a work ethic involved, there's a commitment and a determination to do the job. You know, she's not going to vacate, she's not going to not pay attention and that sort of thing. And I do think that there's also a desire that people trust her experience. As President Obama said, more experience to this campaign than pretty much anybody in modern memory, and that that will be put into service on behalf of the people of this country. So I, I guess they're sort of intertwined, Michael, um, but distinct at the same time, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I think all of those are really important to her. And I think it's through those. If you achieve those kinds of trust, I think that, and if you're getting at, is there sort of a personal trust that might be missing? Hopefully the personal trust comes with that eventually. Right, that they're kind of building blocks. And if one is missing, perhaps these other trusts can potentially build towards the kind of ultimate gold star, good housekeeping seal of approval trust, which is like, I just trust you. Right. I trust you. I exactly. And I do think that's, you know, that's sort of what you hope for. 
But that's the hardest kind of trust to gain, especially if you're a politician, especially in this climate where people have so little faith in government, so little faith in our political system, so little faith in people who've been in office. So it's an uphill battle to, to kind of go after that one first, I think. And I do, but I do think it's a natural um, extension of the others if you can achieve the, the kind of trust you were just describing. Lisa, thank you for doing this with us. Thank you, Michael. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. With 83 days until the presidential election, that's it for the third episode of The Run-Up. We'll be back on Friday. We want to thank two colleagues, Thomas Kaplan and Matt Flegenheimer, for recording interviews with voters at Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump rallies that you heard throughout this episode. The Run-Up is a production of The New York Times. Our campaign manager is Lisa Tobin. Samantha Hennig is our war room director. Our senior advisor is Sam Dolnick. Our chief strategist is Carolyn Ryan. Our opposition research team is Diantha Parker and Pedro Rosado. Our debate coach is Vanessa Romo. Every campaign has a theme song. Ours is by Jim Brumberg and Ben Landsberg of Wonderly. Subscribe on iTunes or however you listen to get all the episodes of The Run-Up. And rate us just like you would a foreign hotel on TripAdvisor. Over the last 25 years, the world has witnessed incredible progress from dial-up modems to 5G connectivity, from massive PC towers to AI-enabled microchips. Innovators are rethinking possibilities every day. Through it all, Invesco's QQQ ETF has provided investors access to the world of innovation. Be a part of the next 25 years of new ideas by supporting the fund that gives you access to innovative companies. Invesco QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. There are risks when investing in ETFs, including possible loss of money. ETFs risks are similar to those of stocks. Investments in the tech sector are subject to greater risk and more volatility than more diversified investments. Before investing, carefully read and consider fund investment objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in prospectus at Invesco.com. Invesco Distributors, Inc.